Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to a table talk. This is a podcast of the beloved community, and it's great to be with everyone. My name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the beloved community. And today we have two very special guests, and I'm very excited to be discussing today's topic with our guests. First, we have the Reverend Camille Henderson Edwards. She's a director of economic health and gender justice at the General Board of Church and Society for the United Methodist Church. And she will be discussing her project, Letters to My Daughters, the intersection of faith and advocacy as it relates to the social conditions of women, girls, and femmes. And along with Camille, we also have the Reverend Dr. Andrea Bayer. She is a United Methodist elder serving in the Florida Conference. She's currently serving in Fort Pierce, Florida at Community United Methodist Church. And she is a graduate of Candler and Asbury Seminary. And I just recently learned she's going to be teaching a class on the Bible and trauma at Candler School of Theology. So very excited for that. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. I'm excited to hear from both of you. Um, and Reverend Dr. Andrea will be helping us with the Q&A section. So Camille, thanks for your time. Um, I'd love to hear just everything you can share with us in terms of who you are, about your project, and some of the ministry that you're doing for the General Board of Church and Society. So the floor is yours. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it has been quite a journey to take something from idea to conception um, to ministry. Um, so yeah, Camille Henderson Edwards, I always, you know, I am I have started the process since the start of Letters to My Daughters of introducing myself uh, by way of my lineage, right? So I am Camille. I am the daughter of Michelle. Um, I'm the granddaughter of Florine, and I am the great-granddaughter of Mrs. Mary Lane. Um, and I do that because I firmly believe that my own sense of activism, my, my this, you know, the identity that I have received in terms of my activist self first came from the lives of those women, right? My great-grandmother, um, she, you know, I'm originally from Newark, Delaware, and she served as a domestic um, cleaning uh, working to provide for her family. Um, and so many of the issues when we talk about the intersections of economic justice, of gender justice, of health justice, uh, that was her reality. Uh, and so I'm inspired to be in this space uh, because that was uh, also a part of my lineage. Um, I am uh, part of the North Georgia Annual Conference. Um, so before serving in this role, served as associate pastor uh, at Cascade United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia for uh, uh, quite a few years. Um, and then uh, prior to that was sort of just like my academic journey and just, you know, initial start into ministry. Um, I am one who feels deeply called to this intersection of uh faith and advocacy uh, and how we live out our faith in the public square. Um, my background is in researching how the faith community might better respond to issues that are specifically related to uh, women, girls, and femmes. Um, so I uh, am a proud Spelman graduate. Uh, and so part of my research during, you know, my undergrad career was looking at the role of religion in the mitigation of child sex trafficking in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, so uh, as a, you know, grew up in the church, 
my whole life, right? So when I got to college, of course, I got engaged in like the chapel there, but was also a social justice fellow there. Uh, and so I began to see, right, that there were these sort of like social phenomenons that were happening. I think in Atlanta at the time, we started to see that there were these symptoms, right, that we had been missing, right, that this issue of sexual exploitation was extremely prevalent and was happening within our communities. Um, and my philosophy is one that the church is not separate, right, from the community. The church often has served as the heartbeat of the community. Uh, and so if the church is that heartbeat, then how might the church have a response to what's happening? Um, I initially, right, went into ministry because I started working at this nonprofit organization called Youth Spark uh, that is uh, housed within the Fulton County Juvenile Justice Court in Atlanta. And um, while interning there, had been working with uh, a program, the first in the country, I believe, that worked towards prevention of sexual exploitation and had worked with girls there. And uh, this like random day, you know, some girls came up to me, two of them, and they were like, you know, came up, like, does God still love me even though I sell my body for sex? And I was like, of course, of course God loves you. At the time, I didn't have the language to explain why, which is why I ultimately went to seminary. But that was sort of like my first introduction to uh, trying to figure out this question of, of what is our response, right, to uh, the conditions that are happening outside of our community. And for me, that is specifically within this context of gender justice. Uh, and so whether that is, <clears throat> excuse me, whether that is in the local church, whether that is an extension ministry, wherever it is that I am serving, uh, the question that I have that forms my ministry is how might we be able to create a response for the faith community as it relates to issues of gender justice? Um, when I assumed this position uh, at Church and Society, um, uh, we were developing relationships with uh, congressional leaders uh, here on the Hill. And at the time, uh, the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act uh, was very active. Um, and so we are, are actively right, advocating for its passage. And part of that is awareness, right? Making sure that people know that... Uh, the conditions that it is hoping to address, right? It's that it's like actually a thing, right? And so when we talk about Black maternal health within the United States, most people are surprised to find that the United States, right? That it is, you know, the self-proclaimed superpower has the highest rate of uh, Black or just maternal mortality at large, right? Among industrialized nations, the highest, exponentially higher. And then layered on top of that is when you look at these intersecting lenses of race, that Black women within the United States are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Uh, a couple years ago, the CDC released uh, some data that between, I think, I believe it was between the years of either like 2017 and 2019, uh, that of the deaths that took place, the you know maternal deaths that took place during those years, 80% could have been prevented, right? Which means that the fact that these uh, that this data is what it is shows us that this is a choice that we're making, right? This is this is a choice to uh, ignore the lived conditions of Black women who are 
uh, pursuing childbirth, right? And so part of what we do at Church and Society is connecting legislative advocacy with how we show up, right, within congregations. Um, and so I created this program called Letters to My Daughters. Um, one, out of my own philosophy, right, that our sense of activism is often passed down to us from the women, girls, and femmes who go before us, right? As I said before, you know, much of myself is informed by my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother. Um, but then also the program seeks to draw a thread almost uh, that as we are learning uh, and becoming aware of what legislative advocacy opportunities there are to advocate for legislation that promotes maternal health, um, the program is also seeking to draw the thread to look at how that is showing up, right, in our churches. Um, and so uh, the format, uh, each month we have a new module. Uh, and so um, we started in, was it August? Yeah, August of this year. Uh, we start each month with a virtual session that often includes uh, myself and another guest. So for our first session, we had uh, Lauren Relaford, who is from Sojourners. She has done extensive work around legislation for Black maternal health and gave a really great uh, synopsis of what the Maternal Health Momnibus uh, Act is uh, and how churches can get involved. Um, and then we even had my own bishop. I was really honored to join her in conversation, Bishop Robin Deese, who shared for the first time her own personal journey of dealing with uterine fibroids, right? When we discuss maternal health, we often don't think about the implications or the impact of uterine fibroids, how they are extremely prevalent among Black women, and there is little to no research in terms of what causes them or how to treat them properly. Um, and we, you know, from her own experience, right, we're centering the experiences of Black women for this first iteration uh, and using that as our starting point to explore further experiences. Uh, but she was able to come on and just to share her story of what it was like being a woman in ministry, having to make choices about her own uh, maternal and reproductive health. Um, and this last session, uh, we had Dr. Fleeta Mask-Jackson, uh, who is a public health researcher, uh, and she came on to share of her uh, research uh, that she did with also within Atlanta um, about uh, certain factors that contribute to poor maternal health outcomes. Uh, and she spoke a lot about gendered and contextualized stress that as for Black women, right, the stress of worrying about her Black child, the stress of trying to put food on the table, the stress of, you know, showing up every day to combat economic conditions uh, that exponentially affect Black communities that also has a direct impact to their birthing experience. Um, and so, again, the, the general ethos of this program is to, one, talk about things that I think traditionally we have not discussed, right? The fact that this issue of Black maternal health has been a crisis for years and we're just now talking about, it, I think there's something to be said about that. Um, and so part of my, you know, what I was hoping to do was, you know, how do we create space to talk about these things? 
specifically within the context of a faith community, specifically within the context of, uh, of uh, a congregation, um, looking at how we might be able to like explore this intersection of faith and advocacy so that we're able to draw the thread, right? How do we show up in the public square? And also how do we show up in the pew? And so this has been the first iteration. I'm hoping that there will be others to dis you know, discover other topics, um, but it's been really, really eye-opening, I think, for the participants that have engaged. Well, I think that's great. That's a great overview of your background, a great overview of the program, and I have so many questions to ask you. I'm going to go ahead and let the Reverend Dr. Andrea Bayer-Thomas start us off in our Q&A and, and see if um, Dr. Andrea has any questions for you. Reverend Camille, thank you again for joining us and, and for sharing the work that you're doing. Um, we, can, we can feel the passion and hear the passion in your expressions. And really, this is amazing work that you're doing. And so thank you so much. And I, I want to ask you, um, you mentioned that your sense of activism has at its roots in the lives of women in your lineage. Uh, so could you could you elaborate a little bit on how their stories have helped to shape your path? Yeah, thank you. for. I love that. I love talking about just like the women who shaped me and not just them. Right. Like I was a, you know, a firm uh, product of my village. Right. So I was raised by aunties and just so many women. Um but yes, I am in this moment reminded of my grandmother, right? Who believed in the power of community. Uh, hers was one, I probably shouldn't say this, you know, in the podcast, but her house was one, her door was quite literally always open. You know, like I still, I'm like, girl, did you lock your door? You know, but that just, her, we came from that community where if you wanted to pay, stop by and pay a visit, you know, she was always there. And she was always one where, you know, people who who would come in her home and sit at her kitchen table, whatever you were in need of, she sought to at least walk with you in providing that, right? So whether that was a meal, uh, whether that was prayer, um, and if she did not have the resources, she did what she could to connect you with the people to get it. Um, and so, you know, for me as a young girl, you know, I'm growing up um, not thinking too much in the fact that, oh, the person who was sitting at the table, they came to my grandmother's house because they did not have food, right? And so for me, now in my big girl job, in my big girl ministry, I'm like, oh, that was a question of food insecurity, right? What, what conditions made it so that a person could not access the food that they needed uh, to, like, to proper... Uh, like feed their body, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I just think seeing her, seeing her operate in that way um, inspired me, you know, she instilled me, you know, she instilled in me this notion of also, right, to whom much is given, much is required, right? And so when we talk about that within the biblical text, there is also this notion that, okay, so, the Lord has made it so that I have been exposed to and seen these women at work. Um, the Lord has also made it so 
that I have had the trajectory that I have had to be able to be in a position where I can ask these critical questions, right? And so I think because of her witness, because of her light, you know, she very much sort of raised this, this person that I am to be concerned not only about my immediate circle, right, but how people are living uh, in the neighborhoods and communities around me. Uh, and that very much is part of my ministry. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Um, so I love how you did that con contextualizing work where um, you picked up your grandmother's open door policy mm -hmm. and uh, how you were able to transfer that to the 21st century and the social issues that you see around you in that now this idea of hunger becomes a food insecurity, food justice um, situation. And so beyond yourself, um, how do you see the idea of community in that way, um, acting in either similar or divergent ways? Mm. So I'm also, I think we've developed this format, right, of, of uh, starting from the women who have uh, gone before us. As it relates to issues of gender justice, um, I think... The idea of creating community, I'm thinking of the little girls, right, and the women who are in our churches. The idea of creating community for me uh, first begins with creating space to talk about like the actual things that women, girls, and femmes are going through, right? Um, in our conversations with Letters to My Daughters and in subsequent conversations and discussing the program, uh, we have been creating space uh, for women to share stories uh, in such a way that they did not, like they, they could not share um, stories on, you know, how they sought out to make decisions about their bodies, stories about how they struggled, right, through their maternal health journeys, stories about how they came to this awareness right, of um, of motherhood, right, and what that entails. And so I think that, especially for the church, right, who the church wherein historically we have carried this history of not reserving space for women, even though women have often been the, been the backbone of the church, right? And so I think that for this next iteration of community, um, I think that our priority is curating space for women to share uh, stories of their lived experiences, uh, void of judgment, uh, and void of embedded theologies that we uh, uh, sometimes don't interrogate. Yeah. Oh, I am just, I'm having a ball here. Erwin, um, I can ask more questions or... I can I can sure. give you a break. <laughs> well, the first thing I would I would think is this is a message where I want to know as as a man mm -hmm. what what can I do? And and not just a question for me, but those listening to this, allies, what can we do? Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed that sometimes, you know, some of the things that are most hurtful 
have been normalized, right? So it's so it's like you know something is done, uh, especially in the church, wherein you know this thing happens and everyone sort of brushes over it, right? Of of women feeling as though they are not being heard. I'm trying to think of a. I'm trying to at least create a specific example for the purpose of this question. Um, but those instances, right, where a wrong has been done. And the response is, oh, that's just the way it is. Um, I think that we have to teach, like train ourselves to combat that, right? To resist that. Because I think that when things are normalized, that's when things become systemic and uh, it becomes just like the, the lay of the land. So I'm thinking, for example, um, and I'll even use, right, the format of like women in ministry, right? When uh I, the church has not had a woman pastor right or associate pastor for uh some or ever right uh and the opportunity presents itself right for a woman pastor to be appointed to that church and they resist the notion is mm, that's just the way it is i think that we need allies to challenge that Right. Because I do think that women in general. Right. You know, we holding up the world. OK. <laughs> right. And so I think the role of the ally is to is to one, be mindful of what is at play. OK. So, uh, you know, historically, women being clergy, women having leadership in the church has not been the best. Right. And so being aware of that and also right. Praying for discernment praying for courage that the Lord equip you to know and to discern when to speak up, right? And to resist those normalized ways of being. Um, and so I just used, you know, women, clergy and leadership as a general example, but I think specifically as it relates to the, like the, the topic that we were talking about in letters to my daughters uh, around black maternal health, um, uh, most people, and I might, I, I, we can edit this out or not. Nah, I'm not sure, de depending on uh, the context, right? But I'm thinking of, uh, when I'm thinking of several experiences of women, right, who have had children, right, and have not been married, and they have often been dismissed, right? Their their pregnancy or their birth has not been celebrated, right? Is that a norm like something that has been normalized what harm is that causing um and so i think that our response to that could be one to acknowledge that we're doing that uh and then two to call that out uh and say that we recognize that in any condition we celebrate that you are preparing to bring forth life into this world and we want to make sure that you have a healthy uh experience both for you and for your expecting child. On a, I appreciate your response. And it, it makes me think too, on a similar note of another question. And that is, because I think about the context of the United Methodist Church, right? Like we're a, a church that is 90% white, mm -hmm. right? And, and so most of our churches um, are white, mm -hmm. white leadership. And so when you talk about some of the 
for example, poor maternal health in the African-American community, mm -hmm. right? What can, and where do white churches start to help with something like that? Yeah, so I think over the course of the program, we've discussed a number of ways. I think the 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 uh, immediate one um, is to engage in some sort of legislative advocacy. Uh, so we just had an action alert released. Um, Representative Robin Kelly uh, has introduced to the House uh, the Care for Moms Act, uh, which is a bill that would promote structures uh, to provide better maternal health outcomes, right? And so one of the main things, right, as action alerts are set up for people who are signed up to our listserv, Anytime that we have this immediate need, an action alert is sent out via email, sometimes through our social media. And literally, all you have to do is go uh, click, read about. There's often a description in terms of what's happening and what the bill will provide or seek out to do. Um, and then there is uh, a form that you can fill out that goes directly to uh, your congressional office, um, your congressional leader's office. Um, and it depends on the activity and the nature of the bill. Uh, it is sent either to the House or to the Senate, right? But to have an influx of those alerts sent to congressional offices that sends a message saying that your constituents are concerned about this issue, uh, and that helps guide uh, our congressional leaders in knowing that this is something that people are concerned about. This is something that needs attention, right? And so I think for predominantly white uh, spaces, the first step, right, is to do something like that, to advocate. Um, and church and society, right, we're here to guide and walk with you. Um, I think if we look through, if we look at, again, connecting, right, the thread from what we do in the public square to, to what we do in our pews, I think the next step, right, as we're developing this sort of like this public witness in the square is to interrogate our practice in the pew, right? Um, I think for specifically with Black maternal health, our last session, we talked about the social determinants of health, right? And how there are other factors that are non-medical that contribute to a person's well-being. Um the example and the research that Dr. Jackson shared was that gendered stress has a direct impact to maternal health outcomes. Uh, gendered and racial stress. Um, I know we talk about anti-racist work uh, and uh, what we might be able to do to mitigate, right, you know, racism within our communities. Um, but that is an ongoing effort that is also connected, right, to Black maternal health. The fact that Black communities have to be hyper aware, right, of their surroundings, of how they are perceived. Uh, they have to be hyper aware of um, violence in the community, right? All of these things are impacting the health of the women preparing to give birth. So I think one of the things in terms of practice is looking at how how white churches are seeking to be anti-racist. Um, I think another thing 
going further upstream is like looking at the community that they are in and seeing other like resources, right? Do you live in a food desert? Like asking the questions of like what resources are not being provided uh, and seek to provide those things, right? Because all of those things are impacting uh, a person's ability to thrive. Um, and I think that goes for, you know, we're talking about Black maternal health, right? But uh people of color, right? The BIPOC community, uh, we know that when the people have what they need when they need it, they have better health outcomes. And so I think if we're talking to white churches, uh, the, the intention is to become informed of why these things are happening, not just that it is happening, right? I often give the example of, you know, how we do really well at food drives. We know that hunger is a thing. Why is hunger a thing, right? So let's address the immediate hunger through the food drive, but then let's also go further upstream and ask why food insecurity is an issue. Um, and I think that commitment to that practice are, are a number of ways, right? That communities can begin to, to respond. I appreciate that response and I hope it's helpful for churches as they begin to, you know, navigate uh, through the process of figuring out what they can do. You know, we have an anti-racism task force here in almost every district in our church and, and they're listening to these table talks. And so I'm hoping that they'll get involved with their legislative work, get involved with asking that question of why and um, look up the Care for Moms Act. And then I also, sorry, this just no, came. Go ahead. This just came to mind, right? But I think at large, right, when we talk about justice, um, I think for some communities, uh, justice and faith are separate, right? So, of course, doing the work of caring for marginalized communities would not be a priority for you because you don't see the connection of living out your faith by way of ensuring another's flourishing, right? And so I think also that there has to be this greater narrative, uh, and not this greater narrative, right? Because people are having the conversations, right? It is it 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 for me. It is an it is undeniable to see the life and work of Jesus, and know that Jesus was one who had deep concern for matters of justice. Right? It is in the text. What does the Lord require of you? <laughs> right? And so I think that prioritizing further conversations around, and not conversations, right? Preaching in the pulpit, talking about this in our Bible studies, right? Using this in our prayer group, pulling out the fact that Christianity in itself, right? Is a faith of justice. And I think we have to, to train like our congregations, engage our congregations more in like talking about what that is and what that means for them. So that when we do come into conversations, right, where we are preaching in the prophetic, right, that there is not this 
cognitive dissonance for them. Uh, and they see that care for their neighbor uh, to the extent that they, yes, they want to engage uh, in matters and making sure that we're going further upstream to address an issue. That too, right, is what it means to be a follower of Christ. I love your response. And, and it's made me think about my journey in the past, you know, two, three years in terms of the way that I look at ministry. And I'd love to hear your response on it. Mm. And that is that, you know, when I first came to know Christ, there was this emphasis on indoctrination, on, mm. you know, saving people, per se. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, professions, if you look at it from a conference perspective in terms of numbers and metrics, professions of faith, worship attendance, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And studying more of King and being involved more in the beloved community and work like yours, you are actually saving lives. Mm. Right. And so I find myself and many of us find ourselves doing some of this work of advocacy and justice in the middle of having to meet the conference's expectations of their, their and their metric systems in terms of indoctrinating people into the faith and saving them. Mm -hmm. Fundraising, fundraising, right? making sure we got enough money and also involved in, in some of the work that for us really matters, like food insecurity, mm -hmm. like mental health. And you know, we, at least I feel that way sometimes. And so as we transition into a more inclusive and anti-racist denomination, or at least even Florida here, conference, what do you say to those pastors who find themselves in the middle where they want to engage in the justice, but they have this pressure from the conference. They also have to raise funds. They want to be more, you know, open up about their advocacy. And we find ourselves in, in, in tension of all that. Like, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough, right? It's tough. It's t And I'm not even, you know, for me during my years, you know, seven years in, the local church, never a senior pastor, I have profound respect for the work of senior pastors because we're, I was an associate and I felt like I was juggling just so many things, you know, of just, and, and you, right, like managing, right, ordering the life of the church, right, but then also like being pastor to the church, right, every time uh, there is a death in the community, making sure that you are present, making sure that you're being a non-anxious presence, uh, making sure that you are there to celebrate the joys of that community. Um, and so I think that that uh, there are some nuances structurally, right? I know not everyone, I came from the context where we had a lead pastor and several associate pastors, right? And so I think that, that there uh is something to say right about like looking at how we are organizing our leadership structure within the church uh so as to make the lift right the work of ministry a collective one um but then i also know that there are churches wherein that lead pastor is the sole pastor doing all of the work um, and all the work in terms of ordering the life of the church. 
Um, I think that one of the one of the things that I set out to do with letters to my daughters was try to think through models of ministry wherein we did not recreate the wheel, right? I think uh, similar to my earlier points of uh, if we are to create community, right, for women, girls, and femmes within the church, then we have to integrate it within the life of the church. We have to integrate it within uh, mechanisms that already exist, right? And so if we are integrating this notion of justice into the life of the church, I think one of the initial steps is to make it a normal conversation in some of the structures that we already have. Are you preaching from a lens, from a justice lens on Sunday? Are you interrogating the text to prepare for your Bible study from a womanist lens, right? Whose stories are you centering and things that you are already doing? And how are you preparing your congregation, not just to just receive that information, right? But to recognize and honor the humanity of the people and the stories that you are sharing, right? So in a way that does not uh, enable a person to just merely accept that story for what it is and to separate themselves from them, right? How are we putting ourselves in proximity to that story? So I think that there are levels, right? When we talk about this work of justice, I think that there are levels that depends on capacity, that depends on uh, leadership structure. Uh, but then I also believe that there is a way to integrate, right? This narrative of justice into, uh, into the work that we are already, that we are already doing. Uh, and I know that I say this knowing that if I, I know that there are preachers who are thinking if I preach a justice oriented sermon, I'm going to get an email on Monday morning, to Sunday night about, you know, talking about someone who did not see that as uh, uh, appropriate for the pulpit. But I think for us as ministers of the gospel, as pastors, right, we do this work of walking alongside people as we are shifting perspective and as we are challenging. Um, and so I think that, yeah, there's more to be said then of, of how we learn to consistently walk alongside a person uh, as we are looking to integrate this conversation of justice into our spiritual lives. I appreciate that. appreciate that response. Make it part of your practice. Make it part of the rhythms and systems you already have. Yeah. Create some new ones. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Andrea. Um, see if she has any questions. Well, Camille, I, I really so appreciate the responses that you're sharing. And you have actually answered a lot of questions that I had that I wanted you to, to uh, raise responses to. So thank you for that. Um, I want to say that as I do agree that if pastors or preachers are not doing the work of integrating a message of justice in, in their sermons and in their work, really, it's a kind of malpractice. And and so um, I'm saying that as, as a fellow, a justice fellow, uh, you have had some disturbing encounters 
right? Uh, you've seen some horrible phenomena like sexual exploitation, racial violence against people of color, um, whether it is structurally, you know, economically, you know, the economic injustice that you see. And you talked a lot about Black maternal health and, and the risk around that and the fact that uh, the U.S. has made a choice to ignore the perils of uh, um, Black mothers and the risk that that are associated with, with, with that. And, and this is a lot of intersectionality. Um, and, and so what do you say? Because real people come to our churches. Real people um, stock the shelves in the, the stores that we shop, right? These are real people's lives that we're talking about. And so what do you say uh, when, when the fear takes precedence over the, the, the need for this work to be done, the fear of people losing, leaving our, our congregations because when they leave, then we lose money, as, as um, <laughs> Reverend Irwin so aptly stated earlier. That, that we are centered so much on that. And so how do you address not only the, the pastors, but the people as well? What kind of conversations uh, should we be having, or should those who don't do that work, <laughs> should be having around these intersectionalities? Yeah. I don't know. I think That's a good question. I have to talk this through a little bit because when we talk about fear, right? Fear comes from, right, uncertainty, something that is unfamiliar, right? Something that that we that we don't know. Um, and so the question, like the immediate question that I would have is like, okay, so why? why when talking about the suffering of another human being right when talking about the suffering of a member of the body of christ that is difficult for you and i think that's a right i think that's the question that we have to to ask ourselves first or at least if i i'm trying to to think of if i were in community right with a congregation that would resist what it is that we're talking about. I think for me showing up as pastor, the question that I would have for them is, what is it in you that is innately resisting another person's suffering? And if it is, If it is, then I think that there's something also to be like exploring how we identify and honor the Imago Day in someone with whom, like to whom we do not know. Right. And so I'm thinking, you know, my context is the Black church. And when I know that my sister, similar to how I was raised from my grandmother's kitchen, you know, 
thinking back to like how this is tying in, my philosophy is if I see my sister suffering, it is not a her problem. It is an us problem, right? And so I think the question is, how do we teach and preach and pastor in such a way where we are teaching that to see the image of God in the lives of people we do not know? Because I think in doing that, that mitigates fear, right? That mitigates flight, right? When we preach a, a prophetic sermon, right? And everyone is withholding ties. And so maybe the first step then is approaching it from this element of pastoral care and having that conversation, leading it in a way that is causing the congregation to be reflective, like in their own lives. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. And then just like the... I do, I fully believe that uh, this notion of God being with you, right? God being God with us, that God is in the church. God is outside the church. God care, Christ cares for the church. And by nature of that, Right. I think for us as clergy, as pastors, we also have to be reminded that through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, right, there is also work that is at play, right, in supporting and building the life of the church, right? The life of Christ's church. Uh, and we also have to give space for that as well. But I, I I think in some, there has to be another way that we that we begin to question why you are threatened to begin with. So true. Thank you. Oh my goodness, so much. And and letters to Letters to my daughters could easily become letters to clergy, letters to church members, yeah. Yeah. you know, because of this, this deep need to educate and to track actions that reflect the gospel of Jesus. You yeah. are doing amazing, amazing work and really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Mm. Thank you, Reverend. Yes, thank you so much, Reverend Camille, um, for your time and for really everything you've shared with us today. I hope people log in to the Letters to My Daughters, check it out, just Google it, Letters to My Daughters, and you uh, Google her name, Cam Camille Henderson, and she will pop up, it'll pop up right on the top on Google. And I wonder if you have any closing words for us as we close today's podcast. Um, I'm just really grateful to share this space. I'm really grateful for the people that I get a chance to work with. I'm speaking of Alina Sacito. She served as uh, our theological intern. And so a lot of the, um, of what you hear in the virtual sessions, we also have a podcast where we are looking at how faith, our spiritual practices intersect with advocacy. 
as it relates to Black maternal health. That is a lot of Alina's work. Um, and so I'm grateful for her. Um, my prayer for uh, the communities and the churches that hear this is that um, that that they might be inspired to seek ministry a new way. May and I won't even say a new way that they might be inspired to seek ministry in a more expansive way, um, and that they might gain clarity and courage to prioritize the issues of women, girls, and femmes within our religious spaces, which I believe we have not done the best at. I think uh, that is also our work and our call.